We're going to be in Acts 12 today. I'm really excited about today's passage. Um, I've never gotten the privilege to preach to this one. Um, it's a, I mean, I actually hadn't preached a lot of Acts before, but this one is like a story you hear about growing up. And the crazy thing for me was I feel like God really pointed me to something else than what we usually make this passage about. Uh, we make it about things that, like, uh, we're going to talk about Peter being rescued from prison at the very beginning. But I don't really believe that's the biggest takeaway in all of this. Uh, but we get to see that our God is sovereign. <laughs> and we get to see His sovereignty on display in this moment. And um, uh, I think that we kind of think about God and devil and evil as this, like, war that's raging and who's going to win the battle type thing. But we know who wins, but still it's really like this war that's raging and it's like who's taking over right now, that type of thing. Like there's this rivalry, like the greatest rivalry of all time. It made me think, though, about some rivalries that we experience in our lives, like um, Roadrunner and the Wiley Coyote, um, pretty important one, right? Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, my, one of my favorites, Mario and Bowser. Like, these are ones that, like, we grow up as kids, like, but the, the picture is, in all of those, who wins? The good guy, every time. And so we've been conditioned, like, yeah, God's going to win. Batman and Joker, the real question is McDonald's and Burger King. Which one is the winner? Who's the good guy? Neither. Both of them are not good for you, really. Coke and Pepsi. Then, really, Alabama and Auburn. Yeah, Auburn, duh, come on. But we're the losers a lot right now. So uh, we'll just say that and just let it be. And then my favorite, this is, though, my favorite rivalry. I had to bring it up. Luke and my cow, Wilbur. Uh, <laughs> if you're not aware, there's this ongoing joke where uh, our friend Luke here thinks he can uh, have a fist fight with my bull and he would win. And it's an ongoing joke. But I say that... <laughs> jokingly we think that this rivalry between jesus and satan is a rivalry and in reality it's not it's simply our god is sovereign and satan comes underneath him evil has to submit to him it's not even an option it's not a a war that's really raging in the sense of who's going to win at all there's a war raging for our souls, but the reality of the truth is, is that God has won. Jesus has been victorious at the cross, and we get to look into that in just a moment. But I want to encourage you today that as we look at this passage, we're going to see a high with Peter and a super, super low with James. I'm going to start in the middle of the passage because it's, it's what we're familiar with. And I'm going to bring us back to the beginning of the passage to let something sink in that I don't think we let sink in often. So with that, we're going to read Acts 12, 6 through 11 first, and then we're going to uh, come back to 1 through 5. But let me pray for us uh, as we dive in and ask that God would open our hearts to His Word. God, we ask that You would speak. Lord, that You would move. 
Lord, that you would let us see what you're showing in your scripture, what Luke is presenting, this beautiful story of Peter being rescued from prison. But then at the same time, the struggle of what James experiences at the beginning of the chapter. God, help us see that you're sovereign over both situations, that you're our God that we can trust, that we know that you're in control, and Lord, help us submit our lives to you today. Lord, use today for your glory and to spread your name to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts 12, 6 through 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was... He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he, uh, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So first... The first point we see today is God is supremely in control. God is supremely in control. God is capable of removing any and all barriers in our lives. This moment with Peter, chains fall off of his wrist. An angel shows up and gets into the prison with Peter. Just think about that. That in itself... Like, he just showed up. He appeared in the midst of all these guards. And we didn't read it yet because it's in verse 5, but there was four groups of guards put on in charge of watching over Peter. They're like, he's not getting out this time. And then the guards sleep as all of this action's happening. The chains fall off. They are able to hide as they pass the guards. The gate opens on its own. Get the craziness of this moment. Our God is sovereign over the smallest of things and the biggest of things. He's sovereign over salvation and He's sovereign over chains falling off of Peter's hands. I want you guys to get the beauty of this. Our God is capable of removing any barrier in our lives. I'm not going to get too deep into it because it's the last point, but I want to say already, like, this is not a prosperity gospel message, though. And what I mean by that is that the prosperity gospel is that God is only going to give us good. And when we believe in Jesus, it's just grand. That's just not the truth, though. Life is not that, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But the chains can fall off. And this is the beautiful picture. Nothing's too big or small for our God. 
The, the chains can fall, but also the chains of sin can fall. He came and He died and He broke the barrier, the distance that we had between us and God. Where we couldn't get to God. Where we couldn't be reconciled to God. When we were far from God, Jesus came to break that barrier, the biggest barrier that we could never overcome on our own. I want you guys to see, it's all barriers He's capable of. He's shown it in just the Gospel as well. But God guided Peter with an angel. Everything is not always black and white for us. God expects us to walk by the Spirit in our lives. And I just, uh, David and I are having a time of discipleship weekly right now, and we just talked about the Spirit guiding us daily. And what this looks like is we submit to the the Spirit guiding us daily. That's what God wants from us. And it's not always just easy and like, hey, this is what you're supposed to do or this is what you're supposed to do. But what He wants from us is to say, I'm submitted to you, God, and I'm going to follow wherever your Spirit guides me. And so what that means is we have to be saying, God, where is your Spirit guiding me? So that means we have to be in a relationship with Him. That means we have to be praying, talking to Him on a weekly basis, a daily basis. That means that it's not just show up on Sunday, sing a few songs, and then I know what God's telling me to do. Like, it's walking with Jesus daily. God expects to guide us, and we follow. And in the midst of this, Peter gets, gets guided by the angel, but he's drowsy and not sure of what's happening. He's not sure if it's really a vision. But get the beauty of this. He was willing to follow no matter what. <laughs> he's like, how many of you guys, i got some funny stories on Seth. How many of you guys got some weird stories about kind of sleepwalking, kind of in the middle of sleep, you know? I have some weird ones. My kids have some weird ones. We all kind of like do some dumb stuff when we're like half awake, half asleep. So, I want you to think, is your reaction in the midst of being half awake, half asleep, I'm submitting to Jesus no matter what he tells me to do? Because that's what is happening with Peter. He's in the midst of what he thinks is kind of a vision, a dream type state, and he's like, I'm just going to follow God. I'm just following God with my life. My life is submitted to Jesus. I'm just walking with Him wherever He leads. Are we willing to follow no matter what? When things are foggy and things are unclear in our lives, when we get some bad news that we weren't expecting this past week, when the job that we've found our foundation is says you're no longer allowed to work here, or we get a help uh, prognosis that is saying things are not right, when things get foggy, are we saying, I'm still submitted, Lord, or do we start fretting? Do we start worrying, start trying to fix it ourselves, or do we say, God, I'm yours? I'm willing to trust. And this is small acts of obedience and big acts of obedience. So when the big things come, are we submitted? In the small things, are we submitted? So what I mean by that is this week, when Jesus spoke, the Spirit spoke to you and said, hey, speak to this person, did you? When the Spirit said, hey, you need to go over here 
and spend some time in prayer? Did you? When he called you to read his word and said, hey, you hadn't read his word tonight, you haven't read my word, you haven't spent time with me, and you're like, but I'm tired. Are we willing to submit in the big stuff and in the daily small stuff? The reality is, why would we say yes in the big things when it's all on the line if we're not willing to say it in the small stuff? When it's just easy and simple. So for like Peter, when the angel's guiding and he's like, hey, follow me. Like, his life is on the line. His life is on the line and he's yes because he's been yes for the all of Acts so far. We just got the story of him and Cornelius when he was called to go and he's like, yes, I'm going. Yes, I'm going. Yes, I'm going. Is our yes on the table or are we half in with God, guys? Are we straddling the fence and saying, but I want this in my life, not really what you want, God? Because I think that's the thing that we play here as the American church. We're half in with Him. But what we see here and the beauty of it is our God is sovereign over all of our circumstances, all the big stuff, all the small stuff, and He can deliver you today, but it's submitting your life to Him. It's trusting Him with your life. With God, all things are possible. But that does not mean you will always get what you want. And so that leads us to our second point. God's sovereignty does not equal an easy life. God's sovereignty does not equal an easy life. Look, Peter's in jail. Peter's kind of about to be on trial to be put to death. It wasn't easy. <laughs> then look at this for us. This is the part that we just kind of bypass and overlook so quickly. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that he had pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was, all, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four guards of soldiers to guard him. Sorry, four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So get what had just happened before Peter is put in prison. Herod had gone on a violent rage and had just killed his brother James, his brother in Christ James. And I skip these first five verses because I think we forget this part. Because we see what happens with Peter. It's exciting. It's crazy. Like, look at what our God can do. Yes, that is so true. But this section is extremely important for us to get a full theology of our God's sovereignty. Yes, He is capable of doing all things. But that doesn't always happen. And we just we have to realize that persecution is going to come to the church if the church is being the church. If we're not playing church, if we're not acting like the church, 
if we are truly being the church of Jesus, we will experience persecution. Here Herod gets really Herod gets really serious about bringing harm to the church because the church is growing. God is building the church and Seth talked about that to us last week. He is building up his church. Once again though, persecution comes in the midst of that. We've seen it over and over and over in Acts. Sharing the gospel, growth, persecution, they go and pray, sharing, growth, persecution, they go and pray. This is the cycle of Acts so far. So why would we think that this is not the cycle of our church? Sharing, growth, persecution, prayer. Sharing, growth, persecution, prayer. Sharing, growth, persecution, prayer. This should be the cycle of our church that we are trusting our Lord and when we pray and get down on our knees, we hear from Him. Yes, we're supposed to go, so we go and we share. We see people come to faith. We see people trust our Savior. And then we get people, though, that don't like us very much because they don't like what we're saying. That should be the result. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition while living on mission. We should be surprised when we don't. Think about that. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition while living on mission. We should be surprised when we don't. And a lot of you in here might be like, Joe, I don't like this. I don't want, I don't want to be Peter right here. I get it. I get that feeling. But 2 Timothy 3.12 and John 15.20 tell us something different. 2 Timothy, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hear me. There is no wiggle room on that. No getting around that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we want to walk with Jesus, it's going to happen. If it's not happening, it's because we're not walking with Jesus. I'm not saying, let's be turds. Let's go and make people mad. That's not what I'm talking about. And we're going to get to that in just a second. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, all, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus telling us straight up, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If we're not experiencing persecution, it's probably because we are not following our master. I think... I experienced this by hiding, by being hesitant, and not truly modeling Christ to the world. Because the Scriptures tell us that Jesus is a, a rock of offense. 1 Peter 2, 7-8, through 8, it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, the stone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Get the picture that our Jesus is the one who is hard to take in because what He says is difficult. 
we get hesitant about sharing the gospel because we are like, we don't want to be offensive to someone. We don't want to annoy someone because we might scare them away from knowing God. But hear me, church, they are already far from God. They are blind to the gospel. We're not called to mold them and make them ready for the gospel. We share the gospel. Jesus shapes people. Hear this, church. It's not my job to make you clean for Jesus. He's the one who makes people clean to be a part of His church. And we're still not clean. We're messed up, hoping that He continues to work on us daily. He's the one who saves, not us. We don't prepare them and make them ready. And so if you're not ready today, it's good. Go to Jesus. Follow on His knees. I mean, fall before Him on your knees. Trust Him as your Savior. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. None of us are. And that's the beauty of the Gospel is we don't have to be good enough. We're not perfect enough. And we shouldn't, though, expect the world to receive Jesus really kindly because American culture says the opposite. It says you are good enough. If you work hard enough, you can do whatever you want. Set your mind on something, you can accomplish it. You deserve it. Comfort is king in America, right? The exact opposite of what Jesus teaches, though. Jesus says you're not good enough. You aren't. You can't make yourself right before God, but I have come to make you right. I have come and I've died for you. I have come because you can't do it, but I can. And it's us admitting, yeah, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I can't make it right with you, God. I can't. And so I'm trusting Jesus to do it for me. That's what salvation looks like, church. And so as we go out to the world We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus makes people stumble, that He's a rock of offense because He speaks right against our pride. So that's why I'm saying when I say, don't be a turd. You don't have to be a jerk. But sharing Jesus with people and the truth of sin and the truth of the Gospel is offensive enough on its own. It's going to offend us. It says to our souls, you're not good enough. You're a sinner. But what's so beautiful about this picture is that we have a Savior who loves us. The Gospel will offend. Let's not be offensive just for the sake of being offensive. So what I mean by that, though, is be kind. Be gracious. Be loving. Be caring. Be sensitive to the things going around us, but share the truth and let Jesus shape hearts. And I want to point to kind of the hinge thing for me in this passage is that persecution, even though our God is sovereign, He's in control. Look at what happened with Peter. James was killed. James was killed. Peter was jailed. 
and was going to be put on trial here, probably be executed as well, to feed the Jews' desire for violence towards the Christians. I want you to hear, church, persecution could lead to our lives being taken from us. Like, that's reality. And yeah, that stinks in a sense, but we're going to dive into it in just a second, but it's also just the reality of being a Christian. We must realize this. God being sovereign doesn't mean that our lives are just easy and won't have any issues. It could even be our lives being taken away from us in persecution. And if you were part of our community groups this week, we mentioned this, or uh, the guys mentioned it, and we told the wi- uh, men to tell the wives. But our brothers and sisters in uh, Nepal experienced a lot of persecution. And our brother Pradeep um, has experienced it. And he sent a message to us this past week that one of their churches that they are connected with that he's going to go speak at in the next couple of weeks, their pastor one of the men in their church uh, was beaten and uh, a few days later died. Like in northern India area, a man who we know was beaten or that we are connected to was beaten for his faith and killed. Like, that's heavy. That's like... We, we have it really gentle right now here in America. And I think it's changing. I mean, I think we, are all, we all can see that the, the uh, picture and the landscape's changing. But right now, it's not this. But the reality is that the gospel is, can possibly lead to persecution that leads to our death. It's a reality that we must face. And God's is sovereign even over that. I want you to look with me. God chooses to save Peter, but not James. Why? Does he love Peter more than James? Was Peter the better apostle and who cares about James? No. <laughs> I'm going to read. I, I wrote out, like, I, I wrote my sermon on Friday. And uh, I wrote out, like, just what God was leading from this portion and then I fell upon an article from John Piper where he just said it a million times better than me. So I'm about to read uh, just pretty much verbatim. I skip a few sections. But th- this is an article that he wrote, like a little blog. And it was just so perfect. He said, he summarized, like what I was saying was summarized, but he said it a lot better. So forgive me for just reading, but I think it's worth reading. The night that James sat in prison, the angel didn't come. I'm sure he prayed for an angel. He knew God could send one if he wanted to. An angel had already rescued him and the other disciples once before in chapter 5. But this night there was no bright light, no chains falling off, no sleeping guards, just desperate prayers and fitful dozing if he was able to sleep at all. In the morning, James was still in jail when the dreaded voice of the captain of the guard shouted, Bring out the prisoner. There was an anxiety-filled, prayerful walk to the place of execution there's probably a pronouncement of his guilt possibly there was an offer of pardon in exchange for recanting his beliefs followed by refusal there was a raised sword 
There was a wince, a fearful anticipation, and no deliverance for James. Or was there? See, Jesus allowed the sword to fall on James as intentionally as He opened Peter's prison door. So the death of James is as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. Why did God let James die? This question is relevant because at some point most of us will find ourselves facing death, pleading for deliverance, and not receiving what we think we are asking for. And it points to a difficult lesson that all of Jesus' disciples must learn. Jesus, Jesus often... It has all, oh my Atlanta. Jesus often has different priorities than we do. What we may feel desperately urgent to us may not be urgent to him, at least not in the same way. Remember how Jesus slept in the boat during the storm? The disciples panicked at the fear of drowning and cried out, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He calmed the storm and said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Every one of us will face a storm that will kill us. And our initial response may be similar to the disciples in the boat. Jesus, don't you care that I am perishing? In that moment, we need to remember that He cares deeply. He, he who wept beside Lazarus' tomb will weep with us. And He will raise us. And we need to remember that He knows what death is like. And will be with us and help us say as He said to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. There's the real key to understanding Acts 12 too. Jesus let James die because he had a better life to give him. James was not being neglected by Jesus. He was in fact the first of the twelves to experience what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me from the foundation of the world. Peter's deliverance from prison was remarkable, but he lived to die another day. James experienced the true deliverance, death being swallowed up by the resurrection and the life. And that is what Jesus longs and intends to give us too. That what we endured, the Father's wrath, on, that what He endured, the, the Father's wrath on the cross to purchase for us, He wants us to see and enjoy and rejoice in His glory forever. Man, that's deep. James got the better end of the deal. <laughs> James got the better end of the deal because he got to be with Jesus immediately. He got to experience the joy of his Savior. There's finality to the life that we're running. And we will all die unless he returns. And we see in Psalm 139.16 that all of our days are already numbered. He knows what it looks like. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. James tells us that we can rejoice when we face trials because God is using them to perfect us. James 1, 2-4 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is working all things out for our good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that those... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Church family, death stinks. But the worst thing that our world can throw at us leads us to the joy of our lives. 
It's, oh yes, our God is sovereign over the chains and the barriers. He can save and rescue from any disease, any pain, any junk. He can. And He knows what is best for each of us though. And our days have already been numbered. So we can trust Him and what He's asking for us to do is God is wanting us to trust Him and seek His will. And so that's what we see happening. That's our third point. God's church seeks His will. Acts 12, 12 through 12-19. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other's name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda... Let me tell you guys, Rhoda's kind of funny here, so... Uh, A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said... Tell these things to James, to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day had come, when, now when day came, there was, no little disturbance, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Church... Uh, It is okay in the heaviness of what we just talked about to also see the levity of this moment because Luke seems to be suggesting that with the moment of Rhoda. Like the church in this funny moment, think about this, them telling. You all remember when Rhoda said, you know, it was Peter and we didn't believe him and she just left him outside? Like I think there's meant to be levity in this moment. And so it's okay to laugh if you laugh here. But none of us want to be Rhoda, right? The church is gathered in the middle of the night praying and seeking God. This is where... The cool part is it's not just this one place. If you read the passage and understand what's actually being said, it says this is where many were praying. So this is where one spot where people were praying. The church is also praying over here. And the church is praying over here, and the church is praying over here, and praying over here for the deliverance of our brother Peter. Like the church is praying. They're all over the place praying, on their knees in the middle of the night, praying that Peter would be saved. See, they've seen James be killed, and that he was probably beheaded, and they're asking God to save Peter from this same fate. And then Rhoda shows up at the gate. She hears his voice, doesn't let him in, and she goes to the others. She's pumped up. She's like, Peter's here. Like, we're praying, he's here. But then think about the irony of this. She leaves him in the worst possible place, out in the middle of the street, (laughs) where he's running from the guards, he's hiding, and she leaves him out there. It's like, this is the worst thing you could have done, Rhoda. Don't be a Rhoda, guys. I'm sorry if your name's Rhoda, forgive me. All right. She leaves him in the worst possible place in the middle of the street. I just want you to see, we make some dumb decisions. (laughs) We make dumb decisions sometimes. 
we are praying for his rescue, and then they, I mean, they're praying for his rescue, and they leave him out there to get caught. Church family, we can make some dumb decisions. And God's sovereign over the dumb decisions too. I want you to realize that. Then the church doesn't believe it is Peter. They think it's an angel or his angel. Or they, there's a lot of conversation around this. She has to come and convince them to check. And they call her crazy. But then they finally check and are amazed. And he tells them to be quiet because they get so pumped up that they're like, yeah, Peter's here. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, imagine the craziness of James. Peter being put in prison to experience the same fate and he's delivered like yes like the excitement they've got to be experiencing but then they, they you got to be quiet i want you to realize there is such joy to serving our king and watching him work in his sovereign will to even see and see the frustration probably that they were experiencing the hurt and pain over James but then the joy that they're experiencing seeing God work in Peter's life there should be great joy within our church family when we see God working in our lives when we see something good happening in our brother's life in our sister's life we rejoice with them no matter how bad things are in my life and this is something I really want us to push, church family. Like, we look and we care and we try for our brothers and sisters' good, no matter what's happening here, because God is sovereign over both of our situations. God is sovereign over my frustrations and your good. So let's just trust Him with both of them and say, God, I trust you. I want you to think they are in the middle of the night praying. Do we pray like that? When the guards are asleep, are we praying? I know that's not the model of my life. And God convicted me of this strongly. Is this how we approach prayer in, life, in our lives? I want to say that prayer is not bargaining with God, making demands of God, only asking God for things, some type of medication exercise, bothering God to take up His time, a way to control the Lord, or a way to show off one's spirituality before others. Prayer is simply this. If you want to write this down, this is the definition that I would give you. It's us speaking to God in worship with the purpose of aligning our hearts to His will. I don't know if I even... Oh. It is up there. Good. Prayer is us speaking to God in worship with the purpose of, of aligning our hearts to His will. It's not so that we can manipulate Him and get Him to do what we want. He's not some genie from Aladdin, guys. If you rub hard enough, He'll come out and give us our three wishes. Or if we pray hard enough, He's going to make some change. He calls us to ask, yes, and He calls us to pray and come before Him. But ultimately, it's to align our hearts with His will. He's wanting to shape us and us be in relationship with Him and walk with Him. And John 17 is a great example to see Jesus praying. 
Jesus prayed to strengthen his relationship with God as well. In Matthew 14, 23, it says, And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So he spent a lot of time with people, and he left those people to go spend time with his father. Jesus did. So that means we need to spend some time alone with the father as well. And then we also put our requests and our worries before God. Philippians 4, 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We do put our requests before God, but it's so that He can shape our hearts. Because look what happens when Jesus put His requests before God in Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further, He fell down on His face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he's talking about the cross. Let this death I'm about to experience pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, prayer is not so that we can manipulate and shape God. It's so that He can shape us. So, what He wants is us to bring our concerns and our prayers, our hardships before Him, and then He will align our hearts to them, what He wants to do with it. I want you to ask, what does your prayer look like? Is it you seeking after God and His will? Like the church here? Or is it God do what I want? Because I think that's usually what we pray for. God, this is the job I want, so let's make it happen. This is the way I want my life to go. This is the house I want to live in. And so this is my plan, God. Hook me up with it. That's not what he's asking. That's not what he's calling us to. He says, this is my plan. See where you fit into it. See what I'm doing with your life. See how you can be used for my glory. And submit. Trust me. I'm here for your good. I know what you need more than what you do. Parents, do we not know what our, we need, our kids need more than they do? Yes. Our God knows so much more than that for us. Question is, when we pray, are we saying, God, I trust you? Your will, not mine? Or is it our will? God, do my will, please. So that's the challenge today for us. May we see God is sovereign over our lives, and may we come before Him and submit to Him as the sovereign Lord that He is. May we trust Him with our lives totally and submit our will to His, not trying to get Him to submit to ours. Church family, I don't know what God's calling for you today. But I know who our God is. And I know what His Word says about Him. Are we going to align with it? Or are we going to do our own thing? And when persecution comes, church, it's okay. We have a sovereign King who loves us. Who cares for us. And is working it out for our good. And even if the world brings death to our doorstep, we get to be with our King. We get to be with the joy of our salvation. We get to experience what Psalm 1611 says, that in His presence is the fullness of joy. 
There are pleasures at His side forevermore. Like, we need to ask Him to shape that into our hearts today. That we wouldn't find our joy in the stuff of this world, but that we, our hearts, would say, You are my joy. Let me pray for us. God, I thank You. I thank You for this message. I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the church (laughs) submitting to You and seeking You and being on their faces praying for You to work then and giving us the model now. May we be that type of church. Lord, may we see the rough stuff, the stuff we don't like in our lives and still say we know that You're sovereign over it all. And we can trust You with it. And like with James and with Peter, Lord, that You're sovereign over both. And Lord, You have a will that You desire. We don't know what it is and we can trust You though because You're working all things for our good. Lord, help us believe that today. Help me believe that today that You love me deeply. You care for me deeply. Lord, help our church feel the same. Lord, may Your Spirit guide and direct our lives. May we submit to You. And Lord, may Your name be praised. Lord, we trust You today. Lord, I trust You today. Lord, may You do a mighty work through us. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for what He did on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray.